0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, we welcome back our friend, freelance writer, T.J. Hafer. Hello. And we also welcome, once again, freelance writer, John Boulding. Howdy, howdy. So, tonight, we're going to be talking about Steel Division 2 uh, from Eugene Systems, which I think longtime listeners of the show know, tends to be, with some notable, notable exceptions, one of our favorite RTS developers. We talked a little bit about this uh, this game a few episodes back when we were discussing the role that settings play and uh, adapting existing game engines and designs uh, and giving them sort of a new feel and a new flavor. Today we're actually going to be talking about Steel Division 2 in a little more detail because TJ and John have reviewed it, I've been playing it pretty extensively, and... I felt like we were all pretty aligned on this, and I think we've been talking among ourselves a little bit as we played it, we played a few games together, and then in the last day or so, as I was getting ready to record this podcast, uh, it turns out that we are not the only people who've played it, and some friends of the show, Tim Stone over at RPS, and uh, our friend Ian Boudreau over at Wargamer, also reviewed the game, and Came to some radically different conclusions, which we're going to talk about. Uh, Ian wasn't available for this episode, and uh, there is a long history on the show of trying to get Tim Stone to please come <laughs> on through his head, uh, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. So, we are simply going to have to do what any good faith, uh, you know debater will do, which is Sock Puppet, the position of yeah. uh, people we we disagree with. Uh, so I think we can be relied on to give you a, a, a fair taste of what the pro-Steel Division 2 uh, stance is. But, uh, John, let's start with you, because I, I felt like you may have had the least emotional attachment to Eugen's games going into this. And so I'm really curious what someone who wasn't completely in the tank for the studio, based on Ruse, based on the war game series, uh what what you made of Steel Division 2.
1: Yeah, um it's funny you say that. That's complete. I mean it's completely true. It's an astute observation. I have zero emotional attachment to Eugen's games. Um they have always just sort of been an also ran for me in the strategy game space. Um and Steel Division 2 is cool, but it's broken in so many ways. Uh, I really, it, this is hard, right? Cause I really enjoyed Normandy 44 for all of its sort of issues and the ways in which it, uh, had problems with its core gameplay in places and how you interacted with other players online it was and i maintain that this is true in 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 the sequel this is also true um it is as far as you can go on the realism scale in a a real-time strategy game design and still get a fun playable game um you know and i'm sure that in the future someone will come along and prove me wrong and go farther down the realism hole and make it fun but to this point in video games like this is good this is as good as it gets if you care about realism and you want a real-time strategy game um but i just don't know in many ways anymore what to make of steel division 2 i i didn't love it like a lot of people did the the gameplay is the same but ultimately in many ways it's just as an eastern front skin on normandy 44's gameplay is that the way that you all felt
2: yeah, I mean, I th- I think the common sentiment I've heard a lot is that it feels more like an expansion pack than a sequel. And I think I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I that happens to fit my sensibilities very well because I'm I'm kind of an eastern front and uh Red Army fan uh of late, especially. Um so I liked being able to see that part of the war uh depicted in Steel Division, which I already thought was a, a you know, a pretty darn good framework for this scale of World War II real-time battles. Um, But yeah, it definitely doesn't go out of its way to reinvent the wheel on the tactical layer um, really at all, even down to leaving in some things that were frustrating from Normandy.
1: Yeah, the the major change that it makes is to uh, pump up the scale. You get way more units on the field in this one than you did in Normandy 44.
2: Yeah, which I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing
0: either. I am mixed on that one. I think that it... In general, I think I I, I do incline towards thinking it is a good thing. I think this is a case where, in some ways, recognizably, this is built on the exact same foundations as Steel Division 1. The scale has been changed. The terrain has been changed a little bit. We talked about this on the previous show, but the big one here is that... Normandy 44 is really divided almost like a it's almost like a chessboard where the spaces can't see into each other that's roughly how the the maps work in that where line of sight is cut to be very narrow and every corner every village uh you know every bend in the road can conceal a deadly ambush and engagement ranges are pretty low and also as a consequence things tend to operate at a fairly small scale, right? There's not many maps in Normandy 44 where you can pack in a ton of tanks and, like, launch an armored spearhead at somebody. Uh, But, you know, the flip side of that is... It's very manageable in Steel Division uh, Normandy 44. So I think the shift to the scale here is meaningful. I was talking a little bit with... um, you know, one of one of, the, one of our friends on the show, on the Discord, we played a game this weekend where we just kind of cranked it up, we threw, threw in some extra AIs on our side, and we fought this, like, gigantic battle. And at the end of it, one of the things that he remarked on is that one of the big differences with this game is that the battlefield feels so much more interconnected in some ways, like In Normandy 44, there could be these really discrete battles that are happening over, oh, I'm pushing on the right side and trying to, like, capture this village, which will open, uh, you know, a path of attack to these fields on on the right flank. And that fight is completely separate from something happening in the center because there's so many line of sight barriers that obscure visibility, that obscure direct fire. Uh, You just don't have to think about these things that much in Normandy 44. And the remark that um, this person I was playing with made over the weekend is that in Steel Division 2 here, it constantly feels like no sooner do you start getting the ball rolling in one sector of the front than you start taking, like, deadly flanking fire from the <sighs> other sectors. And so fights are constantly expanding yeah. beyond where you wanted them. Be- becomes this constant, like... In a very Eastern front way, this constant expansion of scope of an offensive, because it turns out you can't really just do the, like, uh, spear-like armored thrust into the enemy's back line, because no sooner have you opened that up, then you are actually driving your troops into basically, you know, a kill zone, and... That actually has been a pretty consistent feature of a lot of the lot of the battles I fight here. And I kind of like it, but it also makes it a much more hectic yeah. game in some ways. I find Steel Division 2 stressful and like a little yes. bit overwhelming in a way that by the end of like my time with Normandy 44, I just didn't anymore.
2: Yeah, it's it's yeah. micromanagement fatigue. It's I mean and it's it's kind of uh it's even even more so because of the fact that like there aren't a lot of like hedgerows there aren't a lot of like strong infantry positions on a lot of these maps i've found there aren't a lot of places where you can just like park some dudes in a town and expect them to actually hold the town partly cuz you've got tanks everywhere and you've got artillery just flattening everything uh due to the nature of like the forces that are being brought to bear but yeah It is a lot more stressful than Normandy 44. I totally agree.
1: Yeah. uh, It's interesting to hear you guys call it stressful. I thought that the map design was one of the most exciting parts of this game, though. Like, I I really loved the maps. I really enjoyed that. As opposed to Normandy 44, where everybody was sort of stuck in their own lanes in many ways. Like, you were pointed at the person across from you and maybe the person on their right or their left but you were pointed at each other and you fought right and it was Mm -hmm. hard to support allies immediately to either side of you um i liked how in steel division two i can do something like take control of a tactically important hill for example there's these hills and plateaus all this rolling step terrain right because we're in belarus um and I could use my position on that hill to protect and support my allies. Even if I never pushed forward during that game, right. I can take a plateau or a hill. I can garrison it. I can, you know, get my, any aircraft, uh, up there. And then I can move anti-tank weapons and I can prevent armored thrusts on either flank of my position and there, thereby enable my allies to defend more successfully and mount offensive of offensives of their own. Um, I really liked that part of it, but as the game snowballs forward, I do a little bit agree that it gets micromanagement intensive, especially if you're careful and effective and you're really good at shepherding your resources, you will end up with a ton of units on the field and you will end up underutilizing a lot of them just by the nature of the game.
0: Yeah. I found the scale of the game where it really began to cut against me was artillery actually. This was a game where a lot of times what you're doing is engaging in, and this is where the war game overlap comes from. You are engaging in pretty authentic feeling tactics, right? Like you need to have some batteries reserved for counter battery fire uh, when your prep bombardment is going off. You really need to be using smoke uh to screen advances or you are going to be just absorbing some bad bad hits and you also need to be saturating the target zone with artillery like w- with an artillery barrage and then ideally walking the barrage backwards right do it do sort of a a walking barrage where as your troops are advancing you are continuing to stun and demoralize the troops that you're attacking uh so that you can both take your position and then not immediately get hammered by any sort of reserve forces being held back there and all that stuff works really well like it feels like a pretty solid war game in a lot of ways like i i think John, your way of describing it of this is about as far as you can go uh, to making a real-time war game before crossing that threshold into, like, the really unapproachable specialist territory that a lot of war games occupy. But even here, I found myself really wishing for some quality of life stuff, like, just let me set Barrage dimensions if you know what i mean if i've got like if i have six mortars uh yeah. grouped together why am i targeting them all individually why can't i just say hey this is a mortar battery i need you to saturate things inside this rectangle like yeah That, and, and that sound, like, I know how nitpicky that sounds. I know how churlish that sounds. (laughs) But until you are, like, deep in the shit in this game, you don't understand how really necessary that is. How much, like, how much attentional overhead is absorbed by support units that way in, in this game. And, Little things like that would have gone a long way to, I think, smoothing that curve between the approachable RTS that Steel Division 2 kind of is and the serious war game that it is this close to being.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that even just some simple ability to select a group of units and then have that selection stay available to you while you selected subgroups within it just any any kind of interface innovation was really begged for in this game especially after that was one of the big criticisms in normandy 44 and it's just not here they just haven't stepped up that design scale that design element to make this game better like when i have 10 su-76 self-propelled guns on the battlefield and i literally have them mapped to one through 10 using the unit function on my keyboard like unit selection groups on my keyboard because that's how badly i need to be able to choose where my separate artillery is firing
2: (laughs) yeah well and like even just something like being able to to select a group of units and give them an objective would have gone a long way too because, yeah, we, you can't really be paying attention to everything that's going on. So if I could, you know, give, you know, one of my armored groups an objective, like, just move forward to here and kind of see if you can hold the line at this area. Um, I mean, they give you beacons that you can use to tell your AI allies to do that. I would like it if maybe I could tell my own guys to do that because I need to focus yeah. on something else that's more, you know, micro reliant Um, yeah, the, the, the level of, the level of, um, complexity is, is definitely above and beyond the tools that they
0: give you to manage it. And there's little things like, so they introduced this thing in this edition, which this does make it hard to go back to steel division one, the efficient shot option where units are not going to open fire at maximum range they will open fire when they have a greater than 50 percent chance of inflicting lethal damage which is critical obviously right like if you see it's great if yeah if you have tanks that have not exposed themselves yet you really do not want them popping off rounds and stopping to engage at maximum range because <laughs> hey they are, we're over yeah, here exactly. air strike yeah. me please Uh, especially because so much of this game also, this is a game that really expects you to have internalized the logic of penetration values and armor and optics, basically. Like, this is a game where you really need to know how, uh, the, you know, Panzer IV, what is it, the Ausf, uh, (laughs) <laughs> versions of it how those stack up against a upgunned t-34-85 right versus if they see a uh, SU 85 anti-tank uh, tank tank killer basically out there on the horizon what what are those two matchups look like what are the tactics you need to adapt uh, adopt in each in each scenario this is a game where you need to know that stuff really pretty much off the top of your head because that is where you need to like micro your troops um but especially you need to not engage tank killing units like the stalin 2 uh like the you know panther d you need to not engage those at maximum range where their big guns and thick armor basically mean that they will stand you off and just you know, pop your tanks one after the other. You need to, like, be able to keep your troops from giving that away. Here's the problem. I didn't find an option where I could just make all my units behave according to efficient shot by default. Everybody I brought onto the map, I was telling, I had, the first thing I had to do was immediately grab them and be like, hey, quick thing, don't (laughs) give yourself away and, like, commit suicide via undisciplined firing uh, because if you forgot this, like what you will see your tanks do is they were, they will roll into max range immediately, stop and engage and just start firing. And if that is not favorable to them, they will just sit there parked until they're eventually destroyed or until you force move them or, or change their settings. But it was just a, a weird thing where on the one hand you have this, this button that, basically allows you to turn on the smart ai for your troops. Hey, do the do the intelligent thing here. But then that's not their default behavior. You have to consciously tell them not to th- like not to completely throw themselves away. And yeah. if you forget in the middle of all this other stuff you're doing, you will be surprised when you turn around and like why are these guys out in the open just getting wasted? Oh, that's because this group of grenadiers just decided to open up with a light machine gun from max range in the middle (laughs) of a field uh against enemy in a village
1: cool yeah you really wanted the button to be um free fire right you wanted that to be the thing you toggled on was yeah fire whenever you want instead of fire when it's smart
2: yeah, well, like with all of the little things that don't matter as much that they <laughs> let you tweak in like the division designer, you'd think that maybe setting like default behaviors would have been, you know, something that would have made sense too. But I think that it's an even more elegant solution to just have everybody on the don't be a, a dummy setting
0: automatically. Um, I will say I really did like... The fun thing about this game is the entire deck building conceit of Steel Division games and the Wargame series beforehand, they really are in service to, I think, Eugen's kind of enthusiasm for just the details of. Weapon systems that were used in World War II. I mean, again, if you go back to Ruse, this is a developer that got really into looking up, like, hey, what were French plans for heavy tanks in 1940? Like, if the French hadn't gotten taken out right away, what were they planning on building for for giant tanks? And then put that in the game, right? Like, this has always been a developer that, like, looks at kind of the weird margins of World War II to see if there's something interesting happening there. Here what that means is you get a really fascinating mix of uh, Axis and Soviet divisions, and then there are so many different ways you can set those divisions up and interact with teammates that Steel Division 2 becomes a really, I would say, unsolvable game in some ways. Like, I don't have... I have a standard operating procedure insofar as I have certain tactics that I am comfortable with my competence level I can carry out. But it sure doesn't feel like there's a clear rock beats scissors type set of relationships in this game. It's way more complicated than that with the phase system and the uh, unit loadouts and then just the, the weird hardware you find in this game
1: yeah i completely agree um there's a an almost obsessiveness to the cataloging um the best example i can think of in this is that one of the german divisions has two kv2 tanks Um yes. and there's a little throwaway line in the description of the german division which is like hey kv2s are a russian tank but the russians have lost all theirs by this point in the war but these two captured ones may well be the last two functional ones on the eastern front you're like all right. That's not something I knew before I started playing this game, but I sure am glad no. I know it now.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I found I found some of that stuff really interesting and I I I think I actually, I mean, I'm I'm kind of an Eastern Front fan, but I think I like the divisions in Steel Division 2 compositionally probably better than the ones in Normandy 44 to be honest. Um I like kind of having the Sort of pressed and uh, perfect Wehrmacht kind of reduced to what can we throw together? I think that's that's kind of an interesting concept yeah. to play with. Um, I like those really like dug in defensive heavy Soviet infantry uh, divisions, even though I've never won a match with one. <laughs> it's still fun to try. Um, uh, it's it's uh, yeah, the Hungarians are cool. Um, just overall, I think oh. I think the division
0: compositions in Steel Division 2 are a little bit more to my liking. The minute I saw a Hungarian infantry division, that its description was, yeah, this is basically a World War I infantry division. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, <laughs> sold. Give me that immediately. Yeah, and it is, red on red, the- Hungarians only mode. <laughs> Great war yeah. reenactment, yeah. And you really are, it's a completely different game playing these guys, because they can't move. Uh, They do get armored support, but basically it's clearly, like, loner armor support from the Germans. So, like, you can call in uh, a couple German stugs to help you out, but, like, clearly this is a tactical reserve that's made available to you. But, like, this is not what your army's set up to do. Uh, No. But on the other hand, the weird thing is with the Hungarian division, there's, like, field guns. In this division, which isn't the first time we've seen this in steel division, but I haven't seen it on the the scale where the Hungarians are basically fielding really modern traditional field guns in, like, the Napoleonic sense. Yeah. And it's ridiculous at first, and they are outclassed in a lot of ways, but... Their range isn't bad, and my god, if they catch enemy infantry in the open, it's incredible. It's just yeah. like you're just watching these guys run a firing drill, and it's like damn, that really just pulverized uh, that entire quadrant of the battlefield. It's really cool to see, but it does require this like almost maniacal attention to detail as you're setting up these positions. Like it's It's a different game with these guys, and it's incredibly cool that they're they're in the game for this. And then the way that all interacts with the maps, that's the, the, the part of this game that gives me a little bit of like dizziness is this notion that not only do I need to know my division uh, and sort of what other people are going to be working with on my team and what the other team's going to have, but then all the tactics I'm going to use, what I'm going to try to accomplish, changes completely depending on what map we're on and what portion of the map I'm fighting over.
2: Yeah, I think one of the Soviet divisions actually uses a lot of field guns too. Um, it might be the 184, which is the one I've been playing with a lot. But yeah, that de- it definitely adds another kind of um, like almost another kind of chess piece to the game that you didn't have before, uh, which is which is definitely really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that. The Soviet doctrine at the time really emphasized multi-role artillery pieces, so you kind of always have the option to use most of the Soviet guns as a field gun if you feel crazy enough to do so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like they've all the- got AT shells, so why not go to town? This is a really good period
0: to set a game because basically by this point, uh, you know, as you're pointing out, TJ this This is an interesting clash because really you're seeing the actual like doctrinal maturity of the Red Army taking shape. There's a few divisions now that can do it by the book that the Soviets have been writing for over the course of this war. But there's still a lot of divisions that have been involved in such heavy combat that they're still not really standardized. They are still basically like, well, here's the stuff that uh, has sort of been piled together over the last year or so of combat and just make, make of it what you will. And then the Germans, this is kind of the end. Like 1944 Operation Immigration, which is the backdrop of this of this game, after this campaign is over, the Germans are pretty much spent on the yeah. Eastern Front. Like there's just no more, there's not much left in the way of uh, fair fights bet- between the two sides. Like these are there's a lot of German units just getting kind of ground into a powder in this period, but you still have the Germans have this mix of there are depleted and exhausted infantry and like uh Panzer Grenadier divisions, which are basically running whatever they have left. And then there are still like really, top-of-the-line German tanks appearing in some divisions, and kind of unequally, but... And so you do have... The Germans do have the ability in some places to reassert, like, a technical technological edge, even as their force profile in this game is getting more and more ragged. It's getting more and more... Here's some stuff. I I really am tickled by how many Soviet tanks uh, they, they field in this game, which apparently been at at bruce garrick's uh recommendation i've been reading robert forchick's uh history of tank warfare on the eastern front and one of the things that he describes is that because the german logistical uh like chain leading out to the front was so tenuous and so overstretched that panzer units in the field were basically keeping themselves afloat by salvaging their own tanks, but also, yeah, salvaging a lot of stuff that had been abandoned by the Red Army.
1: Yeah. Um, I I do really enjoy the, the balance, I guess, between the two kinds of forces in this game, right? The well-equipped elite divisions and the sort of backline or second line divisions that have been pressed into service to plug gaps. Uh, mm-hmm. I like that... Eugen has done a good job game design wise of making it interesting to play either one of those groups. yeah. Um, and that's really a pleasant thing to see, right? There were a couple of the divisions in Normandy 44 where you were like, I don't know if these people should be in the game at all. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: And I also like that they've kind of, the map design has created a role. I mentioned earlier, there aren't, there don't seem to be as many positions where you can kind of like set up and hold it and like expect it to be kind of okay for a while. But the trade-off with that is I think they've added a lot of utility for, I guess what you would call kind of rugged infantry, uh, whether that's, you know, like German pioneer units or, you know, assault engineers, which everybody kind of has the, the, the Soviet snipers, which I'm still trying to kind of get the hang of how to use Um, or, or those kind of like gotcha I'm going to put, you know, a Panzer Panzerschreck in the bushes sort of strategies seem to be a lot more viable on uh, SD2's maps than they were on Normandy 44's.
0: Yeah, the role of inventory in this game is interesting. I think the... It's funny to me that the, the Normandy 44 game plan was basically you park your infantry in towns and forests and get some ambush yeah. opportunities. And then mostly what you had to worry about was artillery bombardment and other infantry coming to root you out here. What's funny is the inventory has to occupy space, uh, particularly because this is still a frontline system where there are victory points, but where the, uh, area of, of control where the front lines fall in this game determines who controls uh, a victory point but you end up in a lot of positions where inventory is just steadily getting pulverized in like a key set of towns or forests and you just have to keep feeding it in there because you can't abandon it uh, you can't like let that space go but neither is the inventory going to be getting those like Again, in Normandy 44, you would have those uh, paper beats rocks type moments where the infantry ambushes were enormously powerful. Those are much harder to pull off here. What's more likely to happen is just massed infantry combat that sort of simmers and flickers for ages while everybody is just getting hammered by artillery, um, which is kind of a interesting difference. And it does make for unusual and unexpected dynamics like i was really tickled the other day when um i had a bunch of german infantry advancing in this like gulch in the middle of the map and i couldn't root them out because every time i sent armor down there it was just a, a narrow defile and they would get you know, blown to hell. Uh, I couldn't sustain the line of sight because they could see anything that entered that sort of gulch area, and so any any spotters would get like you know nailed immediately. And so what I ended up doing was like taking a bunch of the uh, Soviet auto machiki, the uh, like basically assault troops with the PPS uh, mm-hmm. SMGs. I had a group of those in my precious few half tracks. I just rolled up on those German troops a bunch of dudes with basically Soviet Tommy guns poured out and just murdered them. It was it was it was unreal <laughs> that unit was basically useless the rest of the battle like the submachine gunners are incredibly low utility in most of this most of the battles battle spaces uh, but my God, having them basically do a mob hit. On, like, a company of German <laughs> infantry. Yeah. I was like, oh, damn, like, when you need these guys, you really need them.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's great to use those units to do things like putting them in the middle of a long string of houses, right? So, like, yeah. your enemy hops up through the houses and then halfway through, they just kind of get a big, 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 stinky submachine gun surprise. Very satisfying. Oh, man.
0: This is not yeah. a game where you can defend from the edge of a clearing. Like you the the entire name of this game is to like use something to screen your position and hammer people as they sort of break cover. But yeah, like my instinct in this game is continually to like hey, move that gun closer to the edge of the plateau, get a really good field of view. Uh hey, get infantry to the edge of town, and really dominate the approaches. And mm-hmm. every time that is just, don't listen to that voice. Don't listen to it.
2: Yeah. And I think that's something I had a really hard time adapting to. I don't, I still don't think I've adapted to it yet, even though it is, you know, fairly authentic to the Eastern front. Uh, like Rob, you're talking about these positions that just kind of get ground away over time. And I think what, what loses me a lot of fights in Steel Division 2 is just the fact that I have not, Flip that switch in my mind where it's like, okay, I need to think like a Red Army general. I need to just keep sending infantry to the same place because by the time they get there, the guys that were there before are pretty much already going to be dead. Like I feel like in, in Normandy 44, it was like I would set up a strong position and then I would focus on strengthening that position and, you know, pushing forward if possible and it does seem like, yeah, and a lot of times in, in Steel Division 2, what you have to do is like, okay, I have, you know, a million Strelkovi in my reserve. I just need to keep saturating this area, you know, with fresh guys because that's how we're going to hold the line. Um, which feels very, very different from the kind of tactics that that uh, I would be using on the Western front.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh- it's fun to get rewarded for defense in depth in this game, right? To have a second or even third line of troops yes. behind the first line. Um, defense in depth, mm-hmm. so critical. It's cool because it wasn't really a thing, in Nor- as much of a thing, at least in Normandy 44, right? You'd have a front line and then whatever was behind it was behind it. But in this one, like having a forward screen of riflemen and then two streets back, a machine gun in a church, or uh, having a hamlet in the middle of a forest clearing, right? And you have guys in every chunk of forest around that hamlet and no one in the hamlet itself, you know? Um, so the enemy thinks they've wiped out the front line when they take out some guys in one of the chunks of forest. They move into the hamlet and they get fired on from every side. Those kinds of tactics are really satisfying and worthwhile in this one, which is great. I, I really love that. Um, the thing I don't love about that part of this game is that... It does mean that uh, when you're trying to play with other people online, you can't pull off those key tactics as often. And so someone else is maybe going to mess it up, right? Like, they're going to take advantage of what you're doing, and they're going to move stuff into your area and mess with you. And and that level of coordination has really stepped up, um, and that can be frustrating. Were you spectating my games with TJ? I was not.
0: <laughs> I was about to say, not me. I'm not gonna mess it up. This,
1: this, TV, this uh, sounds
0: I... extremely familiar. Uh, no, it's it, it's true. Like I think there's an instinct. This is the weird thing. This is a game where you're better off. Um, Sticking to roughly historical tactics rather than doing what a lot of RTS games encourage you to do, which is just like maximize what is on the forward edge of your fire, like of the yeah. battle, just always right. like have everything up front all the time. Uh, this is a game where no, you this is you need reserves, right? Sometimes it actually does pay to just back your tanks off just get just drive them out of there and have them like fall back to a rally point and decide where to send them next but you can't just keep pushing yeah um, the idea that you are better served by having lots of at guns seated around the line versus like really well constructed like anti-tank positions uh, that are a little bit further back from the front lines like these are things that you get sort of drilled into you repeatedly in this game and it is incredibly cool that I was seeing things in this game that I'm reading this uh, David Glantz book, uh, Soviet Ta- Defensive Tactics at Kursk in it he has a ton of diagrams of the actual like dispositions and defensive formations of Soviet units during the Kursk campaign and it is kind of funny to me that Things I'm reading in that book and, like, these lessons that the Soviets were applying do make their way into this game. And you were encouraged to think in those, you know, along those lines of, hey, make sure your tanks are moving in a group. You're not just sending them up as infantry support because they won't have any impact that way. Uh, Make sure that you do have multiple lines because your first line is going to get torn up. That's just inevitable. Uh, once it's spotted it's gonna get it's gonna get blasted so it's cool that all of this is in the game and I think as a skirmish RTS as a multiplayer RTS this game can be really fascinating and exciting and really bridge that gap between the RTS and the war game uh, but then there's the single player and before we get into that Ugh. before we get into that I'm gonna talk a little <laughs> bit about the last time this game came up we've been talking a little bit to uh some folks who had worked it, at eugen and you know game development is complicated it's hard to say what causes what like there you know you will find games made by studios where everyone apparently had a great time and the game may not be good and there were still weird mistakes and then there's a lot of games where you learn years later where just Utterly miserable to work on. And yet the game is great. So it's tough to draw that line between. uh, It is like if you are trying to find a moral lesson in game development practices and the quality of the output or the success of the output. I don't know that games necessarily give you those clear like one to one correlations. Um, You know, I think we might wish they did, but. I'm just not sure that they do. There's a lot of things in Steel Division where I look at it and I think this seems like it might be related to the fact that Eugen had massive labor unrest. Uh, starting in apparently starting in 2017 and then through a lot of 2018, this was a studio with really bad uh labor management relations and. A couple folks that I talked to who uh, no longer work at Eugen uh, gave me an idea of some of the issues that they encountered. And it certainly doesn't sound like a great place to work. I think the one thing that really kind of shocked me was that a person working on the team, their Paris-based studio, uh, was making less than €2,000 Euro a month. And they had uh, some years of experience in, in the games industry. Um you know, the euro-dollar the euro dollar exchange rate isn't that impressive these days. The euro is not, I, last I checked, it wasn't uh, significantly outgunning the dollar. Um, but the notion that you'd be paying someone, li- like, working in Paris that little um, was kind of shocking to me. And it definitely did kind of, it's one thing to hear about, like, labor issues hinging on contract details and interpretation of what position minimums are because all of that can sound like a very fine print stuff around the development of a game uh, but actually just having someone tell you oh yeah like here's what I was making uh, with all my time on the game and, and all my job skills and training uh, that I took with me into the job every day uh, I was making you know less than two thousand euro a month and living in an incredibly expensive European capital uh that is that detail kind of shook me like I'm you know that that was one of those things where I think I fell out of Uge, out of love with Eugen uh, at that moment as, as a developer and it became very much a oh you're like a lot of developers right there's there's an element mm-hmm. of what can I get away with? What will people bear? And one of the things that I sort of discussed with uh, some of these ex Eugen devs is what should people do about this? Like if, you know, what, what would you have fans do? And I think it's funny to me that a lot of times what you'll hear in... The U.S. discourse certainly is this notion that, hey, don't boycott the game. That's just punishing workers. Uh, if the game is a success, everyone's a success. Everyone is, uh, you know, a little bit better off. Um, you know, put, apply pressure in other ways. What was funny here is that at least you know, and it, it was by no means a comprehensive sample, uh, but some of the ex-Eugen folks that I spoke with were pretty blunt about thinking that any of the success this game enjoys will largely service the management of the studio and workers aren't going to see a lot of benefits. And so their position was kind of... Uh, you know, for, for them and uh, their experiences working at Eugen, they felt like this was not a studio that deserves to succeed and the fruits of that success won't be enjoyed by employees. And so their position was basically if people have an ethical hang up about playing steel division two, knowing that it has all these antecedents. And if they have, uh, you know, reservations about what, you know, about supporting practices like this or a studio that doesn't, uh, keep its house in better order. Um, their position was, you should probably listen to those instincts because they're probably closer to the mark.
1: Yeah, and I think seeing the finished product, it's clear that some of this development was uh, cut or rushed. um, Mm -hmm. Which is unfortunate to see in a game. I mean, there are just, there are UI elements in this game that are not there, right? They're just, clearly were thrown together at the last second. They're not in the same stylistic uh, mode as the rest of the game. They don't use the same fonts necessarily, right? They are um, hacked in there at the last second. It's, It's lacking basic stuff it doesn't have a tutorial mm-hmm. yes to speak of
2: can you imagine like can you imagine somebody who didn't play normandy 44 picking up this game and trying to figure out what they are doing like there's there's like a there's like an in-game manual for the single player campaign but there's no tutorial for the tactical battles at all which are just extremely complex like understanding all the different unit uh commands and line of sight like i can't even i can't even imagine somebody who didn't play normandy 44 which actually i thought had a very good tutorial that kind of walked you through step by step um at a at a pretty leisurely pace all the stuff you had to understand um like i would just be lost like completely lost trying to play this if i hadn't played the previous one
1: yeah, I think it would be baffling and frustrating, especially a lot of the basic game mechanics. You can you can find a manual from the beta if you Google it on their website, right? But that's not in the game. I, I just don't think it's acceptable to ask someone to close their game and go to YouTube to watch a tutorial made by someone who's not from the development studio in 2019. It's just not there.
0: Well,
1: I think it's. I actually don't think I like anything about this campaign. And no, this no, is There's the, nothing redeemable about any of the single-player modes. This is the
0: part where I feel like my colleagues are gaslighting me. Agreed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Tim Stone over at uh, Rock Paper Shotgun and Ian Boudreau over at The Wargamer both wrote really favorable reviews of this game and in particular focusing on what to me feels like the most unfinished and kind of ill-conceived part of this game, which is the campaign.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Army General.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I hated it. But the funny thing, the the comparisons they were making were really striking. Uh, For Tim Stone, this campaign was definitely not as uh, elegant and polished as, say, Unity of Command but he drew the comparison. Uh, for Ian, it was a similar it was it was a similar issue where uh, this is a really good recreation of uh, grand tactical and operational uh, concerns around Operation Bagration. and I just don't see that. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. So, where so the the structure of these campaigns is that you have your sort of macro level objection objectives that you're trying to take, and you have supply lines. And the map is largely cut up into uh, there are roads, there are swamps, there are forests, there are cities. But like by and large, units move faster on the roads; uh, they move slower off off the roads, and then forests and swamps are just massive, like, uh, obstacles to, to get around. And the thing about this, like, even from the first, where it begins to break down is what are the spaces on this map? Like, where are my units actually positioned relative to each other? Nothing seems to quite, like, like nothing seems to quite line up it it always feels to me like you're watching units move around like overlaid on
1: something and their position may not be fully accurate it's like following roads they're, is they're hovering slightly be. above the map in an isometric view so they they have like an invisible war game miniature base that should be sitting in a square delineated on the map and and secretly is but you just can't quite tell because it's just a little off yeah
0: and there's this decision to use, like, real distant distance measurements uh, oh. for them. Again, like, they didn't mm-hmm. abstract. They didn't say, like, ah, these units are occupying this space. Here's a stacking limit. Instead, they tr- they go for this really, like, this is an aesthetic Eugen has loved for a while, which is, again, the, uh, yeah, the sort of sand table exercise or the, uh, the, the commander's map room uh, back at headquarters. And they're trying to channel that. But it just ends up obscuring you're saying, oh, this you know, this is a three-kilometer move. Um, or these these units are four kilometers away from the battle. I don't know what that means. Like it doesn't have any real specificity to this design, and yet this game continually prefers to speak in like literal terms. Yep rather than the abstractions that it actually is this is actually a deeply abstracted war game but it kind of tries to play like it's a one-to-one simulation and not an abstraction
1: yeah i mean you're absolutely right It's, it's deeply frustrating to be playing the army general mode and to want to move a unit and yeah when you when you mouse over a section of the map if you hold it there for an abnormally long amount of time a little tooltip will pop up that will be like a unit can move x kilometers per day in this terrain type and you're like cool what does that mean because all you've given me about my units is an action point system so yeah uh, yeah i mean
2: i like the one thing that I could say positive about it is I think that in theory it was a cool idea. <laughs> um and that's about that's about where my praises would end. I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit on Discord too that there's also the issue with they try to create this system that would tie the tactical battles into the strategic map in such a way that like the relative, like, abstract distance from the battle would determine when, what phase specific units can show up in. But then they've also created these units, um, that are, like, very, historically grounded but not very well rounded units so where like you might yep start a battle with like just recon and you're getting rolled over by like artillery and panzers because you're trying to assault like a highly fortified town or something like that and it's already over by the time your armored support (laughs) gets up gets there like
1: yep like why did these recon battalion start this fight now yeah when the panzer when the the like this fight against like a heavily fortified enemy where they literally because of how bunkers are represented in this game literally can't do anything to the enemy um why is it that they've decided to attack now when they could wait literally 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and the tanks would show up um it's it's baffling right and it's strange to imagine that and because of the way the game works you lose, right? That recon battalion yeah. then loses because they yeah. can't take and hold points for the 20 minutes required for the tanks to show up.
0: So this is the, this is the part that, God, there's so much of this that just seems like a freaking mess. Okay. Years and years ago, my, fr- like a friend and I became convinced that we could make a better RPG. This is going somewhere. Don't worry about it. Okay, <laughs> We could make a better star Wars RPG. Off the D&D system than the Star Wars RPG system that came out in like the mid-90s. We were just convinced that like D&D was a better RPG system. We were going to adapt it.
2: And And, Saga Edition ended up being better than WEG D6. So there you go.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) it never really got off the ground because we just kept making spreadsheets and adding more stuff that we knew was in the universe. And then
1: there was... I'm sorry, can that the- be the new motto for Three Moves Ahead? It never got off the ground because we just kept making spreadsheets?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, so we kept, like, if you added one type of blaster that you knew existed, it needed to have a relative power to other blasters. But then, if that system also needs to comprehend something like a blaster cannon... Uh, that is like on a vehicle, then that also needs to have a value, and you see where this is going. You get this like this thing that doesn't scale at all. It doesn't make any sense. It's that, like when it's sort of like when D anD D was trying to be like a really accurate medieval combat system, and it was like really hair splitting differences between like a broadsword and a longsword, for instance, and that somehow needed to matter in that system, but obviously doesn't. That was kind of where we ended up with this this effort, where we had all the things that made up the Star Wars universe were in the game. We had values for it. We we thought we sort of established correct relative values. But what we never got at the time, and in our defense we were like 10, was that these things exist in context with one another that you don't really need to worry about what's going to happen if a dude with a blaster is shooting at someone crewing a turbolaser battery. That's not a thing (laughs) you need to worry about. The turbolaser battery is only going to show up, really, in places where a turbolaser battery ought to be. This campaign reminds me of that because what it is clearly trying to do is create really credible force structures, for the types of units you would find in a Soviet guards tank division or a mechanized, uh, you know, a mechanized German infantry unit. But the thing is. To your point, recon units don't exist completely separate from no. the rest of the brigade, right? That's just not that's not what's going to happen. You're a Soviet infantry division isn't going to deploy without artillery support that's no, just not. Never. that's just not going to be <laughs> w- what happens here but this game is constantly trying to like putting you in these situations where well you can activate your recon element or and that'll be there in phase a uh, your tanks are coming from farther away, and so those can be activated in Phase B, and then obviously artillery uh, is a ways off. You could activate that for Phase C, um, but yeah. So do you want to carry out an attack like that? And the answer is no. Obviously, like the, it just doesn't. It doesn't work at all. But this game consistently throws up these really unbalanced battles that are occasionally interesting to play. Like. Good war game design sometimes forces you off the, uh, you know, off of standard operating procedure, but a lot of times you just end up fighting that battle you described, where it's oh, I've got an infantry, I've got a recon, uh, yeah, you know, a recon company or a recon, a, a, rec- a reconnaissance battalion that has to just exist on this battlefield with like a fully equipped Panzer Grenadier, uh, you know, battalion. For 20 minutes, and let's see how that goes. And by the way, those recon units are all recon units. Do you want recon infantry? Do you want Mm -hmm. some dudes in a jeep with binoculars? (laughs) Do you want a uh, BT, whatever the fuck, uh, armored vehicle with some, with uh, probably, again, probably a nice pair of binoculars dangling off the uh, passenger side? Some T
1: 70s with binoculars hung over the turret?
0: Yeah. 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 Well, like it misunderstands the role
2: of infantry in a battle or the, the role of recon units in a battle space fundamentally anyway, like they're not supposed to be like deploying on the front line. Like they should have some other utility on the map. That's not like this is going to be our first contact, you know, squad, especially Eastern front 1944. You know, we would probably want to have a lot of the heaviest units up front in a lot of these, these engagements. Like it's, it's trying to, Treat them as just another frontline battalion when really that's that's not even what they're supposed to be there for.
1: Yeah, I, it's it's baffling. I don't know. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's the worst kind of war game design, right? Like it gives a shit about so deeply about these specific organizational and force structures when they actively implementing them as a part of the game in the structure of the game actively makes the game worse and it yeah. is baffling right
0: oh and also I I especially love that not only do you have these macro units that you're dealing with on the top level of the operational map but in the battle they don't even organize them the way they organize units in the uh, multiplayer where you open up your infantry tab and there's your infantry no 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 you've got to click on the divi- like, the battalion you're activating and then the specific company in that battalion that you want to pull units from. And so you have to remember, like, okay, yeah, that's the support weapons uh, company. And that is the one, I think, with the 81mm mortar? Cool. And so there's, like, all these extra steps to bringing units onto the battlefield. Uh, which, again, is pretty freaking hectic. You don't have time for that. I... And it never, it never feels right. Like I think what they're going for, and this is what Tim and Ian seem to be getting more from it, is this is a game that's more about getting all your units staged in position for these mass attacks so that everything can activate in Phase A, and you're not having units trooping onto the battlefield late for Phase C. But everything seems so glacial in this game, like nothing... None of my units seemed to move that far. And so I was constantly like at the very limit of what my units could physically reach on the battlefield. And it never felt. I never hit that point where my brain made sense of this campaign. And I play a fair number of war games. And there was just never a moment where I thought, oh, I know how to fit this into my understanding of a war game at this scale. Never got there. No, well, and it's
2: because it's... of the... Yeah, because of that, like, fake board game spaces but everything is slightly offset thing we were talking about earlier, it's actually pretty difficult to even get that kind of force concentration set up. Like, it's so fiddly yeah, to even physically do it, even if you have the movement points.
1: Yeah, and... uh. They can't. The battalions can't occupy the same space, which is yeah. incredible.
2: Yeah, yeah. Re- recon units take up so much space that they just we can't have tanks there too. You know, there's no room out here in <laughs> rural Belarus uh, for tanks and jeeps in the
0: same spot. Yeah, and that's that's the part of this that just you know is is wild to me is that that was the the way they went and they continually like force you into these battles that don't really make sense from any kind of oh yeah this is how soviet and german commanders would go at each other they would definitely like engage each other with just whatever the hell is lying around at this moment so it's a bunch of guys with like smgs and binoculars just sort of scrapping it out for 20 minutes (laughs) uh you'll you'll be doing that um I think it is It is neat that you can activate the AI as your ally for some of these battles, so you can really go for the scale thing where... It's not. If you, have, you hate it?
1: The AI is so <laughs> bad. It is comedically bad at playing this game. Have you ever seen it go up against an entrenched position? It's hysterical. Uh, it, it will drive a tank up the same road, tank by tank, one at a time, to get <laughs> obliterated... Buy an AT gun for 40 That's the minutes. Thing
2: I, I haven't because there's so much micro fatigue that I'm so worried about what my own guys are doing that I never have time to pay attention to what my AI allies are doing.
0: See, I find the AI is okay in the skirmish mode, but I haven't seen it operating that much in the campaign. I, uh, I don't understand it's
1: like it. It's like the the well-reasoned and capable AI ally from skirmish mode just turns into a raging fucking idiot when you put it into army general (laughs) i don't understand
0: um the other weird thing about the the campaign and this this to me feels like the tell. you can auto resolve basically everything in fact, you don't even have to like you can do two modes of auto auto resolution. You can you can just do the complete like look, just auto resolve the entire engagement or you can basically set your lineup for the phases of the battle and say like ah, for this first phase, here's who's going in and let see how they match up if you want that extra level of control. But it's almost like on some level there's this recognition that the battles that the army general mode are going to th- is going to throw up aren't necessarily going to be that good or interesting. And when I found myself being pulled more and more towards just auto-resolving because this fight didn't look fun. Like, you, you, know, yeah. you get a few of those weird mismatches where it's just infantry crawling through uh, forests and ditches trying to like steal control points while artillery makes its leisurely freaking way onto the battlefield. You, you fight a few battles like that and... Mm. Uh, you've basically seen enough. This is the funny thing about so Tim Stone makes makes this comparison in his RPS review uh,
1: to Graviteam Tactics and to Company and, of Heroes. Pardon? And to Company of Heroes in the same True. breath. Yeah,
0: right. And the, and I think it's fair. Like it's between those two poles, uh, certainly. But Graviteam Tactics, uh, which when we covered it on this show was called Octoon Panzer. Um, hey, another developer that had a relationship with Paradox and no longer does, which is weird. Uh, Paradox's forays into wargaming never seemed to last more than a season. Um, <laughs> but Octoon Panzer and the later Graviteam Tactics, this is the stuff that kind of drove me away from those games, is they could be so obscure. Octoon Panzer was this wargame that was basically like, hey, we picked a sector of the front uh, in like 1942 where basically everyone had garbage and we're just kind of fighting with garbage over empty space and it's cool. And here's the weird thing. It was kind of cool, but it was also really obscure, right? It's just not, it's kind of a confounding tactics game because so much of it is about, empty space and second and third third rate units just missing each other in the dark and you play a few games like that and it just starts getting frustrating because it feels like maybe this maybe this is realistic maybe this is what war on that scale was like but it just feels like a fight that is almost out of your control just being waged by small units scrapping it out over huge swaths of empty space and mm-hmm. I got that feeling playing this game in the campaign mode. Yeah. And to me, that like, for me, I was like, if I wanted that, I would play a lot more Graviteam Tactics and Octogen Panzer. That's probably not what I come to a campaign like Steel Division 2 for, which I, I would expect to be a little more coherent and maybe to throw slightly more cohesive and like properly set up battles.
2: Yeah. Well, and like, that's one thing that I've always found satisfying about hearts of iron, right? As you have your front line and it may be weaker in places and it may be stronger in places, but the front line is always kind of saturated. So you don't have these kind of like throwing knives at each other in a big empty room kind of situations happening because it's, it's these fronts and they come together and there's, generally someone to face off with on every part of the front and uh yeah army general just it doesn't do that at all it doesn't give you it doesn't give you half enough units to you know actually have like an encirclement that feels good and like feels like an encirclement it's like okay maybe i can dash this one armored unit off to like cut off you know part of the bubble and and uh you know deny them some supply um but yeah it really seems like this would have made a lot more sense if they had fewer or more counters on the map that were representing smaller tactical units
1: or just do it at the division level like the entire rest of the game is built around i don't don't know why they felt the need to give you the ability to pull the armored battalion out of a Division that's true that's send a good way to die on its own it just that is, yeah, a weird sense. thing yeah. several choices in this game i think the strongest thing in normandy 44 was how concise the idea of this is your division this is the pool of units you have to draw from this is when in the battle you can draw on them that's a really concise strong basis from which to build balance and understand how your game plays and in Steel Division 2, they just tore it completely apart. They, I think it, it undermines the very basic idea of how the game plays. Because when you build a division for multiplayer now, you can take the uh, units in any phase, basically, right? Like, you can get yeah. more tigers later, or you can get fewer tigers in now. You can get a veteran tiger later, or you can get a shitty tiger now, right? Those basic concepts, it means you can now sort of encounter anything at any time, right? And so the carefully built balancing of unit against unit is completely thrown off. The The escalating, interesting part of the game where... You have this slow phase A part where you're feeling out the battlefield and figuring out where the enemy is and taking initial control of objectives. And maybe there are a couple heavy hitters on the field and they're going to slam each other a little bit. Or maybe you're going to get caught off guard by sort of a sucker punch like an early anti-tank plane, right? Those things were in Steel Division 1. In this one, anything can be coming at you immediately. Yeah. And that yeah. may that may be truer to the Eastern Front. Where it was a more chaotic battlefield environment, but it just does not make as good a video game.
2: Yeah, and I, I'm kind of. I re- I read that part in your review, and I think I'm a little bit of two minds about it because I do kind of like the idea that I can have these battles over a big open space that, like, they they start off with, like, panzers meeting T 34s on, like, the bleeding edge where it's this, like, initial we need to get our armor here before they get their armor there. And and you kind of have this clash that happens at the very beginning um, with these like opposing armored pushes. I think that can be fun. Um, But I also do agree with you in the sense that I think it makes it a less interesting video game. Um, Because, yeah, you do lose out on that. That sort of initial scouting phase that I found very satisfying in, in Normandy.
1: Yeah, I, I, and I think it bleeds over into the campaign, uh, the single-player campaign, and that suddenly that carefully built phase structure just doesn't really mean that much anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's... It's weird. I It feels to me like... So, the Skirmish game, pretty good. It feels to me like the campaign... Eugene yeah. kind of wanted to make a different game. Like... It's a weird thing. It feels like an alternate design based on the same systems, but the overall structure that gave them coherence and meaning has been scrapped. And you're right. I think if Eugen want to go in that direction of we are making something that feels a little bit more like a traditional war game, I'd be really interested to see what that looks like. But I'm not sure you can kind of retrofit that onto the framework of the Steel Division game they've made to date, right? I'm not sure you, like, you know, it, it's sort of like trying to upgrade the KV, right? Like, yeah. you can't be, like, sorry, that chassis does this thing. You can't significantly modify it at this point. Like, it's just not what it's what, what it's built to do. You need to sort of reconceptualize what that campaign looks like. For this to work uh but at the same time the the part of me that like the thing that i'm always wondering about as as i play through this how like the thing i can't know is how different does this look if there hadn't been significant staffing cuts uh yeah at the studio, which and for all I, like by the way like staffing cuts. That may have been, that's certainly driving labor unrest in in, in some cases, but also we have no idea what their financials are like. We have no idea uh, sort of the the overall health of the company and whether or not they, they've sort of made a name for themselves making these sort of specialist RTSs and war games at a level of production quality that is kind of unmatched right now in the space. Like, I, I don't think anybody is really in their league as far as production values go um but i also it's possible that even for them that's proving not to be sustainable and that's one of the reasons that they ended up having these uh staffing cuts and one reason why it sounds like uh you know pay pay is a problem over there but the thing i can't figure out playing it whether or not this is something that could have really been fixed and addressed and improved. If it had been sort of a happy studio where everyone was getting paid what they feel they're worth. And there were enough of, there were enough hands to do the work. Does that change this? I, I I can't really speculate. We don't, we don't know. Uh, But it, the, the, two feelings I get when I consider this this single player half of the game is that there were conceptual problems, but then there's also just massive execution problems and things that are so clearly creating like a poor quality of life for the user that it just feels like if there'd been more people looking at it and more people working on it, uh, I don't see how you would have arrived at something this kind of clunky.
1: Yeah, I, I think that there is it's it's impossible to know what was happening in the development. You're completely correct. but
2: I know exactly what was... No, I'm just kidding. When,
1: when you look at the final product, you don't see good design. I, I mean, I hate yeah. to say that, but when you look at the single player, you see sort of default choices taken with war game design obvious yeah. decisions made and then strange uh clunky to terrible varied just
2: yeah it's it's design level stuff and like i i can't i can't tell if it's that the design was just bad from the beginning, or that maybe they had to scale back the scope from what they originally wanted to do because they had fewer people. I mean again, it's all just gonna be speculation regardless, so it's almost, you know, not really worth you know, spending a lot of time on. But yeah, I mean I could I could see either one being the case.
0: So I think where I'm at with Steel Division two is like as with a lot of games, as I talk about it more, I sort of warm up to it. But for this one, it's just such a weird tale of two games for me. Um,
1: yeah, you're right. It, like, yeah. It's a really cool, really fun multiplayer tactical World War II RTS with a interesting level of uh, realism versus gaminess to it stapled to what I think is one of the absolute worst single player campaigns I've ever seen. <laughs> but imagine if it were good. <laughs> now that would have been
0: a cool game to play. But yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Like genuinely I found trying to play that single player campaign a miserable experience. And that yeah. is and that here's the thing. That is by and large the value proposition that Steel Division 2 is offering. Um, there's that skirmish game is cool i like it um i don't know if it's a huge upgrade over steel division 44 i think it's a different flavor uh certainly but everything beyond that i just couldn't handle it was uh whatever, whatever is the opposite of fun uh is how i felt about that campaign it was just every time i fired it up it was I just feel my interest uh just just waning and so that's kind of where I'm at with this game is that I have reservations like I got a press code but like if I like if I hadn't already acquired this game I would have reservations about buying it knowing what I know and having sort of just followed from a distance the entire arc of the work conditions uh and the labor actions happened over at Eugen. But on top of that, it's just not in. I, w- I want just the good half of this game, and I don't want to get the rest. Like the version of this where it's the East Front expansion to Normandy 44, mm-hmm. I think I'm happy with. Steel yeah. Division 2, I just don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think everything, everything positive about it could have been accomplished with a map pack, map packs and division te- packs for a Normandy 44. Um, there weren't really any core gameplay changes that I don't think I could live without um, going between the two games. And uh, although it is, it, they do, I think there's, they, they were included a DLC where you do get some of the Steel Division 1 divisions that you can actually play in
1: skirmish mode i would what is with that it's pure comedy by the way it is it's hilarious
2: but i would love if they had a way where you could just play all of the steel division or the normandy 44 divisions against the st2 divisions no you
1: you (laughs) absolutely must only call in canadian naval artillery in the middle of belarus it is so funny uh it makes me laugh so hard every
2: land ships john they got land ships
0: they do have land ships it is it is hilarious that you can just like call in the canadians or americans yeah. in this uh in this game it's such a weird thing the maps aren't there but by god you can it's a very company of heroes thing to do but it just doesn't feel mm-hmm. right in a game like this it's it does, it's a weird one it, it
1: so does not
0: it's one weird choice among many uh and that's where we will leave steel division two uh hopefully uh the next time we check back in on Eugen, a lot of things have changed for the better. Uh but that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh this episode was produced by Alicia Akampora. Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com 3MA. Uh, that is further information about our super-secret Discord server, where we occasionally talk about strategy games. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for TJ, for John... This is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.